Ah, ah, okay. All right, I think we are, we're live here, yes. Um, so welcome to another episode of The Daily Dialectic. Um, I'm here with a very special guest tonight. This is Ben. Um, Hello. He needs no last name. He's famous enough just with his first name. Um, at not Ben Fish on Twitter. Um, and I guess I should introduce Ben to the people. I don't even know how to introduce someone like Ben, though. Ben um, used to work for Jacobin um, back in like 2014, right? Like you were one of their first writers I, back when I they was, were still good. I, was, I was the, wrote the first article for Jacobin. You wrote the first article. That's right. Um, it was so, called Socialism, Why It's Good. Yeah, you laid out the case for socialism. Um, and I think that convinced most people. And then shortly after that, we had the whole explosion of Bernie Sanders and socialism getting popular. Um, but that was really because of your article. It's a great book. Yes. Um, I, I already knew that socialism was good, so you know, it didn't convert me. But um, I found a lot in that article to agree with. Um, and you were also like a, like a sports reporter for Jacobin too, right? You were trying to like cover yes. sports, but in a socialist kind of way, which I, I think you're still trying to do. Yeah. I read the yeah. article that says that Tom Brady is a worker and he should unionize <laughs> or something. <laughs> That's right. That was a great piece. Um, and so that, that piece was kind of controversial. Like, is that what got you fired? So we should say that you got fired from Jacobin. Um, I got is... fired for opposing the revisionist Trotskyist line of that particular magazine. That's right. And so you're very um, firm in your convictions, which is something that I've always admired about you. Um, so whenever I have, you know, questions about where politics is going or about, you know, my own um, socialist commitments, even I'll turn to you and you'll always, you know, give me like the, uh, the hardcore line that we should be following. You'll be like, oh, Hoja would have done this, this and that. So we have to follow Hoja, basically. So Hoja's Enver Hoja. He was the wonderful leader of communist Albania for many years. Um, so he's sort of like your, you know, North Star. He's like your guiding sort of figure, right? Yes. And, but he's become unfortunately a meme because of the whole oh, the bunkers, oh the bunkers, oh <laughs> man, it's so funny you built the bunkers, and that freaking you know distracts from the real truth of anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism. Yeah, I mean the bunkers are part of it, um, and and they're fun and they played a role. But yeah, you shouldn't get too bogged down in the bunkers. I think if you're gonna focus on anything in Albania other than Hoja. It shouldn't be the bunkers. It should be the women, of course. Um, and so that's something that I've tried to raise awareness about uh, with, my, with my tweeting, um, is how hot Albanian women are. Um, so that's, you know, one of my functions on Twitter, because I feel like that's overlooked. Um, I mean, that Twitter role is talking about women, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You know, um, the question of women, someone's got to answer it. You know, um, and I, I think, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm the one who has taken that responsibility. Um, but yeah, it's, it's too bad that Hoja with the bunkers has become sort of a meme. But I think um, you can, you know, fix that and remind people of what's important about Hoja. Um, so one of the first things I remember us talking about was the... Um, the pyramid of socialism 
Um, and so let me see if I can bring that up. And so the pyramid of socialism has um, various ideologies uh, going up in terms of um, scientific correctness. Pyramid of socialism. And at the top of the pyramid of socialism, of course, is Nietzschean Hojaism. So that's like the master ideology that we're all trying to build towards, right? Yes. Hojaism. Um, doing an image search so I can have it in front of me. And actually, the first thing that comes up when you search for the pyramid of socialism, Nietzschean Hojaism, is a tweet that I did about it. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. As okay. it should the, be. That's right. Yeah. So this is another one of my roles on Twitter is to, you know, uh, expand awareness about Albanian women, yes, but also the, py the pyramid of socialism. So at the bottom of the pyramid of socialism, we have crypto Blairites. That's not good. That's basically some kind of neoliberalism masquerading as you know, some kind of socialism. Then pinkos, also bad. We get, we get a little higher on the pyramid. Trotskyite revisionists. Um, and lots of people get bogged down in this ideology. And so this, again, is why you were fired from Jacobin is because yes. they were Trotsky revisionists. Because your... I read about it in a Don Hughes meme like this was, and then I, <laughs> I learned that it was bad. Right, yeah. Um, it doesn't sound good. Um, and so who are some famous Trotsky revisionists that, uh, that the people might know, other than I mean, Jacobin? I mean, where do we start? Yeah, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. It's all, all around. So many people love this, you know. Yeah, you have to criticize both sides. You have to, you know, just all that whiny stuff. Well, I am lives bad, you know. Nobody in the global south is good. Only annoying, like magazine writers in Brooklyn are capable of understanding what Marx was really about. Right, and so the Trotskyite revisionists—they're probably supporting like the the protests in Cuba, right? Like, yeah. oh, we have to listen to both they're, sides. They're doing, a, they're doing a, a real workers' revolution down there. Right, exactly. Um, and so we have Trotskyite revisionists, and then a little higher on the pyramid, Brezhnevite renegades, also bad. And so that's just another form of revisionism, um, which you also oppose. So uh, Brezhnev totally fucked up the Soviet Union. Um, I was going to talk about Venus, but we don't have to bring Venus into the pyramid of socialism. It's already, we're already too weird, uh, but maybe we can put a pin in that and come back Our to discussions it. about soy Mars versus Marxist Leninist <laughs> Venus. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense to us because we, we talk about this all the time. But I think are... this, this podcast is mostly just us being like, remember that one, man? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is just, we've been wanting to have fun and talk for a while. So, you know, that's mostly why we're doing this. And other people will probably not understand most of it. But that's what podcasting is. And I think that's fine. Um, uh, so then after Brezhnevite Renegades, Maoite provo uh, Provocateurs, and then Infantile Hojists, and then at the top of the pyramid, Nietzschean Hojism, the master ideology. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a Nietzsche guy, of course. I think everyone knows that about me. Um, very annoying. Always been that way. Um, and I've always been looking for a way to, you know, reconcile being a Nietzsche weirdo with being a Marxist. And I think Nietzschean Hojaism is the way to do it. So Hoja is the most Nietzschean major communist leader, I guess. Um, so what is Nietzschean about Hoja, Ben? This is a very tough question. 
I mean, you're more familiar with Nietzsche than <laughs> I am. You're yes, the professor you, here. That's right, but you're more familiar with Hoja than I am. I think Hoja, it's... What makes him important is that he stuck to firm commitment to anti-revisionism, even in the face of any anybody who would take a practical look at things like Mal and say, you're being, you know, you're being obtuse, you should just, you know, figure out a way to work in the real world while Hoja stuck to a very firm line. Yeah, and so fuck the real world, basically. That's kind of Nietzsche's attitude, I think. And so if you read, you know, a very shitty book, uh, History of Western Philosophy by Bertrand Russell, who I hate, you know, British people are scum, of course, and they're the worst philosophers, you know, they pass off like, oh, I'm being clever and witty as like actual dialectic. So they have no dialectic. They, they, they did invent soy. Yes. Um, and so uh, Russell, he has a chapter in his book on like every major Western philosopher. And Nietzsche is a pretty important guy in the history of Western philosophy. And his Nietzsche chapter, it's literally like two and a half pages. Um, and his like main critique of Nietzsche is like, oh, he was doing daydreams. He was doing daydreams, whatever, as if that's bad. But like philosophy, it, it is supposed to be that. Um, and so I think Hoja, to, and this is where he's dialectical, I guess, is that he was sort of ignoring reality. He wasn't going to compromise or, you know, go against his convictions at all. Um, and so he was kind of a daydreamer in the way that Bertrand Russell criticized Nietzsche for being. Um, but in service of material uh, material reality and in service of like the concrete real idea of communism um and so i think that's the dialectic is that you have to be sort of I don't know, abstract irrational and so on but in service of furthering reality in a concrete communist way does that make sense no Ben? It doesn't, ma it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. <laughs> that means it doesn't make sense. But it's um, good if something doesn't make sense. I think, you know, there's plenty of sense in the world. I think introducing nonsense into the world is fine. Um, the world needs more of that, I think. Um, so, yeah, that's a bit about our shared ideology, that we are enemies of, of course, Trotskyite revisionists, and we're, we're working towards a Nietzschean Hojaism, um, which is also sort of a meme, like Nietzschean Hojaism isn't an actual ideology. Um, <laughs> we're trying to uh, invent that right now. Um, but yeah, so you used to be more of a politics guy, I think, um, but you're kind of done with politics. Politics say, like, is over. There was, there was Bernie and then politics stopped, so it's just, yeah. it's just baseball now. Yeah, baseball is the new politics, um, and so you're more of like a sports theorist, sports philosopher, I guess I would say. Yes. Yeah, and so, I don't know, I kind of think about you as like Adam Curtis, but if he was good and focused on sports instead of focusing on, you know, stupid bullshit politics that Adam Curtis focuses on. So Adam Curtis uh, is a documentary filmmaker, he's done a million things, um, and some kind of weird leftists like him, I guess. He's like vaguely left in some weird way because he's criticizing, I don't know, some of the contradictions of neoliberalism and capitalism and so on. But he's always just like, oh, I wish there was 
some idea that we could use to solve neoliberalism. And like he pretends that communism, communism doesn't exist, you know. Um, and so you are like if Adam Curtis paid attention to sports, which is more important than politics, and if he was an actual communist. I don't know. If he didn't just stick to basically trying to impress women, which is what making movies is all about. Is that bad, trying to impress women? I thought that was the whole point of uh, philosophy. Well, you, of... Might, you should and you shouldn't. And there are very clear lines into where it's, <laughs> you know, where it's normal and where it's being annoying. Yes. And where it's and so making you... a fool of yourself. That's right, yeah. And so you think Adam Curtis uh, tries too hard to impress women with his shitty movies? I've never watched a single one of his movies, <laughs> but I'll go with it, man. Yeah, it does seem like uh, women are more into Adam Curtis documentaries. Just, I don't know, like, you know, you watch them and you feel smart sort of quickly. And I guess women <laughs> enjoy that. Um, but yeah, um, I think there are more important things in politics, such as sports, of course, because as you were saying, politics is over. Um, and so, yeah, the All-Star Game was on Tuesday. Um, and unfortunately, your National League lost. And it wasn't even close. Like, you guys got your asses kicked. Five to two, I think. Yeah, but it was never close. It was five to one pretty early. And, you know. Well, three, three is not a very large number. I'll contend in defense of real <laughs> baseball as opposed to this, you know, this nonsense of the American League, this minor league. Yeah, I don't know, though. Like, the American League, they got more talent, I think. They got more stars, don't they? They got Trout, they got Otani, they got um, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., you know. It's not um, baseball if there's a designated hitter. They didn't so have that, a designated So that Soihei Otani can, <laughs> hit, can break Maris's record or something. Yeah. But, you know, they didn't have the DH in the All-Star game. Like, the All-Star game was neutral, right? So... Don't they have the DH? I, I honestly do not pay attention to the All-Star game. I'm pretty sure that the AL has a DH. In the All-Star game? Maybe they did. I don't know. I was watching it drunk at a bar. Um, but It's not real anyway. It's just a, a meme thing. The All-Star game? Yeah, because it's, like, it's, it's the idea of that the players should be stars in their own right as, rather than players on a team, which is why the uniforms... This year have been so awful. The All Star Game uniforms because they weren't the they weren't just wearing the team uniforms because they wanted to, I think, make it clear that they wanted stars to be more stars than players on their teams. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I think baseball sort of needs that now because, like, they do have stars. But like, so, like, you know. Tatis is probably the biggest star in baseball other than Otani. And like nobody knows who fucking Tatis is or even like Vlad Guerrero Jr. Um, like Trout's the biggest star probably and he has been for years. But like even Trout isn't that popular. Um, and like the f- probably 10th most famous or popular NBA star was probably more well known than Trout. So they have this like, I don't know, gap with stars. So y- you can understand why they're trying to, you know, but it's push, this, push it's this. It's this whole obsession with marketability and, you know, yeah. making the league attractive. And I, it, it just takes away from the game. It makes yeah. it, it's trying to, it's trying to optimize it to its, you know, to some sort of ideal, which is not what baseball is. Yeah. 
And so I'm, I'm looking at some history now. So the first All-Star game was July 6th, 1933 at Comiskey Park in Chicago. The fucking Reddit-ass city of Chicago. The White Soys. <laughs> That's right. Chicago White Soys. It was initiated at the insistence of Arch Ward, a sports editor for the Chicago Tribune, to coincide with the celebration of Chicago's Century of Progress ex- Exposition. Um, so extremely gay all around. Yes. That, that it was part of a, a century of progress exposition in Chicago. Like, oh, isn't Chicago grand? We're going to have a special, a special baseball game to show how grand Chicago is. Just the fucking gayest, lamest beginning to anything. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's never really been good. I don't know. I guess, like, in the 60s or 70s, maybe, like, they tried harder. Like, my dad would always talk about how, you know. So, I think... It started very gay, the All-Star game, but at a certain point, there was some kind of novelty to it because, you know, they didn't have interleague play. Um, and so, like, it was a treat to see these people from different leagues play against each other um, because the only other time you would see that was in the World Series. And so now you have interleague play where American League are playing against National League during the regular season. Um, and so it's not as special. And so, like, you know... In the All-Star game, like, players would take a lot of pride in it and they would try to, like, you know, show up the stars from the other league. Um, but now, like, you know, it doesn't really matter. Because um, it's part of the sort of cheapening of baseballs. It's gone from things being very set in their ways to things just being moved around for TV money, basically. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, um, you're not going to admit that the American League's better, even though we just... It's a minor league. You... It's well... an upstart minor league, more <laughs> properly known as the Western League. They, those teams should be playing in like, Grand Rapids or wherever the hell they were playing before. <laughs> Man Johnson moved them to yeah. New York and such. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. Um, but the American League did just win. So, you know. Because they know they're a minor league and they felt they had to try hard to, so that people don't act like <laughs> the truth is true. Yeah, I can see that. And like, you know, National League players, they're more secure in their status and in who they are. So they don't feel they the have need real to... jobs. They're more concerned about, you know, actually playing real <laughs> baseball. Yeah, they're, they're full time workers. Fun. Yeah. Right. Like the like AL players are like temps basically fucking temp workers um and so you're going uh on a baseball tour soon right you're, you're gonna go check out some some parks in the, in the midwest i'm going on a, an official delegation to yes. some of the, our brother cities in the midwest that's right um so you go to baltimore to watch games a lot right yeah i've seen you tweet about that yeah so is that like your favorite park Camden? Camden Yards? Pittsburgh. Gotta be Pittsburgh. But the Camden Yards is nice. Mm. I mean, at least it's not named after fucking a bank, right? Isn't yeah. PNC That's why I did not Park? Call it PNC Park. <laughs> Just the, I mean, the ballpark on the North Shore of the Allegheny. <laughs> I mean, it really is the worst name because it's PNC is named after a bank, but it sounds like PMC, which is professional managerial class. So, welcome to what's left. We're gonna talk about PMC. Uh, 
that fucking Ben kid. He goes to PMC Park. His little PMC. Um, but yeah, I like Baltimore. I used to go there a fair amount. Um, one of my ex-girlfriends was from there. Um, so great. You know, any is that like the last ballpark that's called Yards? I feel like Yards is what you want to call a park. Either park believe, or yards. I think it is the only yards left. Yeah, yards just seems more fun. Like I want to hang out in a yards. That sounds good to me. Uh so you ever been to Fenway? No. Never been to Fenway. <laughs> no, of course not. Why would I? <laughs> <laughs> I would like to go. I'm surprised you haven't been because you know you're I have, a- but- I have a love for the identity and tradition of traditional Western baseball, such as Fenway Park. Yeah, like, you know, you're a historian of, of baseball, so I, I figured you would go there just out of curiosity. Um, oh, next time I'm in Boston, I'm sure I'll head up there. Yeah, um, and so about like 20 years ago, there was a lot of talk about tearing down Fenway because Fenway was built in like 19... 19- 12 i think or earlier than that or yeah something crazy um and so there was this big like push by the red sox uh back then to get people to buy into like a new fenway park and they had like pedro doing pedro martinez doing commercials it was like oh it's, it's time to build a new ballpark in boston um and so it got close but there was pushback against it like save fenway park um and so they saved it they did like weird renovations to it they added seats above the green monster and, like they expanded it in various ways, um, and it kind of ruined it. Like I, I don't know. I feel like they should have just torn it down and built a new one because, like, it is too small, and like seats are pointing in the wrong directions, and like all the seats are too small because, like, it was built back when everyone was like five foot three or something. Um, There's just you just don't allow fairweather fans in the ballpark and sort of pink hat, you know. I just want to go see the baseball game instead of, you know, being a diehard fan, which is what a baseball park is built for. Yeah. Maybe we should go back to only day games because then there would be fewer people. Yeah, it would be like, sort of, I mean, like... It would be like unemployed people, alcoholics, loners, um, or just like retired people who really love baseball, you know. Um, but those are the only real baseball fans, not people who are just going yeah. there and be like, oh, it's a place to go and hang out. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you don't really get that at any other sporting event. People who just kind of go and are like, I'm not really sure about the rules, but, uh, you know, it's just a nice place to hang out. Yeah. But that's also kind of the cool thing about baseball. It's like going there to hang out, but that has to be balanced with like actually knowing the game. And so you're there yeah. for the game, but you're also there to hang out. Even if you're six beers in, you should still know catcher's interference oh yeah like you you should still be you know doing a box score and like you know if there's a pop out to second you should be you know like keeping track of that and like uh what would the symbol for that be like p4 or something pop out to four you know like you should know the numbers of all the positions even if you're six beers in do you keep score when you go usually not but yeah that's a little much that's a little much um do you still bring a glove? No. Yeah, you're probably outgrown that at this point. He never really was uh, the kind of kid that would do that. Oh, that's good. I was. And I, you I know, was I was. Younger, uh, I guess. Yeah. No, I always knew that I would barehand it. 
like a real man <laughs> and then not give it to a kid that's oh, how you have not. to go to a ballpark yeah you got to barehand it you got to just knock it down don't try to catch it just put your hands up like a wall knock it down so it falls flat in front of you bend down and pick it up and it's yours as long as if it hits your hands then it's yours even if it like bounces off your hands and goes down like if you yeah. see it in front of you like it's still your ball you can go down there and be like that's my fucking ball it was off my hands i own it um i remember i was at a game a long time ago at fenway and i was in left field um and it was vladimir guerrero he, guerrero he was batting against tim wakefield and wakefield is a knuckleballer and he threw this complete garbage pitch and Guerrero absolutely fucking murdered it. Um, and it came like right at me and it hit. So I didn't have a glove at that point because I was like too old for that. Um, and I was thinking about knocking it down with my hands, but the ball was coming in way too fast. So I just like turned away like a coward basically. And it hit off the, the seat behind me and hit my back and I got a big bruise. Um, and then it bounced down in front of me. So I got bruised and I also didn't get the ball because I didn't hit it with my hands. Um, that's yeah, the closest by I got. Vladimir Guerrero. So something. That's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. I should have had him like sign the bruise or something. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah. Uh. For you, I think your theory of baseball is that it stopped being good in the nineties. Is that correct? Once it became a neoliberal game, essentially, like all sports, neoliberalism has made a disastrous impact on pretty much every sport. Yeah. And so baseball became neoliberal in the 90s, I think, mostly because of the strike in 1994. Right. Is that your kind of jumping off point for, for saying that? I think it's more just the general impact of neoliberalism. But also, I think Mm. I think the strike is more the the fruit born by it because you know mm. fans were booing players and shit yeah that's crazy right and like they should baseball... have been executed man <laughs> hosier would have had all those people executed for sure um but yeah like baseball is like the proletarian game you know like um, it was so this, it but was kind of because you see especially like how like black participation in the majors has just gone down since the 80s because it's just become a sport for basically just like pulling kids out of the dominican or you know like rich white kids from georgia right rich white kids from georgia um and you know it's sort of the same thing that's happened with the nba is that like they all go to aau basketball camp and so they all sort of play the same way and like you see the same thing with white baseball players now at least um is that like they're all just these robots and you can tell they all went to the same baseball camps they all play the exact same way they're all you know throwing hard they're very efficient but there's no joy to it there's no style to it um and i feel like that's kind of what neoliberalism does it sort of just levels everything out and it's all about efficiency and there's no right it's about i think you especially see that in uh the steroid thing because these players Mm. just wanted to well, they needed more to just do the most physically possible instead of just playing within the limits they physically had. So right. then you just get these absurd things. And, you know, especially like the obsession with the Maguire Sosa home run race, it's this, you know, these sort of beasts on shit ton of steroids. And, of course, hitting the home run, which is the 
the, the score in baseball most appealing to the average person who doesn't pay attention. So it's just this. Right. It just makes the game bland and it just makes players robots. Yeah, definitely. And so you're just like waiting for the three run homer. And so you miss all the subtleties of the game. You miss like, you know, the dialectics of the game, I guess. And like there's, there's a lot going on with baseball, but it has there are been many dialectics in it. Extremely dialectical sport. And we can talk more about that perhaps. Um, but yeah, it became just about waiting for the three run homer basically. Um, and so we saw the big explosion of home runs and with the steroid era in the late nineties and in, in the early two thousands, you know, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, they're hitting like 60 or 70 home runs every fucking year. It's insane. Um, but that did, so it, it was bad because it kind of, you know, took all the subtleties and idiosyncrasies out of the game. Um, but it also kind of saved baseball, didn't it? Cause like baseball wasn't doing very well in the mid nineties because of the strike. And I guess that's when the NBA started to sort of eclipse it. Cause you know, the NBA with Jordan in the nineties. Um, and so people weren't really as interested in baseball, but then the steroid thing happened and it seemed like it got more popular. So to it was save something while destroying it. Are you really saving it? Well, I don't know. That seems sort of dialectical and sort of a Nietzschean way, like creative destruction. Um, but I don't think it worked. <laughs> um, yeah. because, because then in like the mid 2000s, the steroid era kind of ended. People started to get busted for steroids. And then, you know, you had like the like late 2000s and then the 2010s. Um, I feel like that was kind of a low period for baseball. Um, so like they were going away from the steroid era, but like trying to find what, what the next identity of the game would be, you know? And then you just sort of get this new kind of Reddit thing that Major League Baseball loves to push with this sort of, you know, <laughs> players have to be fun, but only in a, you know, very prescribed way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because um, it's like, man, you know, yeah. the, the bat flip thing, but then also if, you know, they're still very strict on baseball is still a plantation, basically. Yes. So you're allowed to flip the bat, but only in like this very moderate way. If you do it too much, then that's disrespectful. And the, it's just this very prescribed, it's a sort of marketable rebellion, which is very popular. I think, I guess you could trace it back to like the new left and the, mm. so, you know, that sort of like fake. Like what you, I think the best example is La Chinoise of, of mm. the best portrayal of that sort of, you know, like the fake, you know, yeah, we're rebels. And, you know, this, it's become very popular to, you know, to be like, yeah. I mean, it's the whole color revolution thing behind that is just this sort of, yeah, we're rebelling, but you're just in the service of capital. I never thought uh, that there would be a connection between baseball and Godard, but you just did it. Uh, <laughs> that's why you're the best. And so, yeah, it is this very like safe kind of rebelliousness. Um, and I don't know, like it's in this baseball's in this very transitional place right now. Like it's possible that baseball might start getting more popular, like after COVID world, because everything kind of slowed down and baseball is this very slow game. So maybe we're like more, in touch with the pace of baseball now that might be wishful thinking but i don't know 
I think baseball is just, I don't know, I think it'll just become more of a, I think China has the ability to save baseball or to see mm. the sport disappear. Because hmm. if, you know, the, the NBA in there, you know, sort of, what's, what's that guy, the, the free Hong Kong guy that's with the Sixers now? Hmm. Whatever. Yeah, that guy. Mm. But, uh, you know, if that's going to be the NBA's thing, the sort of very Reddit. <laughs> and, and baseball can be, you know, a bit Reddit, but in a different way where they're more willing to yeah. work with the glorious people's republic. <laughs> and so I think baseball will always be a little Reddit just because, you know, they have teams in all of these Reddit cities, such as Cincinnati, St. Louis. Um, I think there's, there's way more Reddit sports, though, like especially MLS. As a league MLS. in this country, soccer <laughs> in this country is, you know, like Columbus, Austin, Portland, Ugh. Seattle. Yeah. Horrendous. So you're saying that Seattle is a Reddit city? Interesting. To an extent. Not, it's not Portland level, but it's. Yeah. Kind of is. I don't know. Like, I, I can respect Seattle sports to an extent. Like, the Mariners are pretty legit, and yeah. their I've fans never... support the team. And they have like some decent history there, like going back to Ken Griffey Jr., Randy Johnson, which I guess only goes back to like the nineties. Um, but they yeah, have like team, mm-hmm. but they have a. I don't know. I like Mariners fans. Sean McCarthy, yeah, me too. Mariners fan, and he's an exemplar of always <laughs> taking the correct line. Yes, sometimes he, you know, gets a little uh, wild with it, but that's okay. That's that's just dialectics, you know. Um. Yeah, I have good memories of the Mariners in the '90s. Like there was that great series where they beat the Yankees in, I think, 1995. Um, Edgar Martinez, who was like a career DH, so that's kind of annoying that like one of their best players was just like a DH all the time. Um, it was always weird, like because I was a kid in the '90s, and like some some of my friends, like their favorite player was like Edgar Martinez. It's like, how is your favorite player going to be a DH? Like, it's so fucking boring. I guess you can kind of respect just being like a 250-pound guy that just hits dingers. Yeah, you know. I think it's. I think I will say I think it's nice that the AL has the DH because it is good to have a distinction between real NL baseball and sort of AL baseball can be a bit more loose and fun because it's a minor league. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so yeah, you had an interesting. Th- you have lots of good theories, and I want to talk to you about some of them um you said a while ago that um sports is the best example of walter benjamin's concept of the proletarian aura um but that's sort of been overlooked and that whenever people talk about the philosopher walter benjamin or benjamin whatever i call him benjamin it's fine um they think about they talk about aura in sort of abstract ways or in terms of like old paintings or boring forms of art or whatever um but I think, you know, Walter Benjamin was a revolutionary theorist. And so tying it to a more materialist, immediately proletarian thing like sports makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think, especially if you look at the history of the game, what people like about, you know, old ballparks and, you know, reading about long gone ballparks from the jewel box era is it's the aura of the park. It's, you know, this, yeah. you know. Like with the polo grounds, you know, it's 
it's absurd to have, you know, whatever it was, like 250, 300 down the foul lines, but it was just a, it just had the aura of something real, something unique, and something authentic. Yeah, definitely. And so the aura was part of your surroundings. It was, you know, this materialized aura. Like, it's, you can't point to it or, like, feel it or see or even touch it. But, like, when you're there, you can, it's definitely present. Um, so it's abstract, but it's also very concrete in this very interesting way. Um, and so, yeah, it's sad when that gets lost. Um, but that's what's happening to everything now. But you can really see it in a very vivid way with, um, with ballparks, for sure. Um, yeah, because it's gone from, you know, these old, very unique places to, you know, this, this, the stadiums of the 60s and 70s were soulless, but they at least mm. came from an age where there's some sort of notion that they were part of a great leap forward and to progress and that, you know, mm. humanity would just keep going upwards and upwards, even if they were, they were Maoist. ugly. Maoist stadiums. Yes. Even if they were hideous and, you know, awful to go to a game at. And then you just sort of yeah. get these, these very Reddit ballparks that have come <laughs> out since the sort of retro ones, you know, where, like, because, like, Detroit, they have the fountain out in left field. Angel Stadium has that <laughs> waterfall. Yeah, right. And there's just all these, these stupid gimmicks that just keep in... It's just this aura, very Reddit aura that isn't the aura of a, a tradition, which is what baseball is, and that's why baseball is special to people, because, you know... It's you know a thing where you know your dad takes you to your first game and yeah know, his dad took him to his first game and so on and it's it's this tradition and then it just gets cheapened by you know this very Reddit you know just putting cheap gimmicks out there you know these sort of artificial quirks in the ballpark where it's not mm-hmm. you know it's like oh this this you know the foul line's a bit shorter here but we just made that up it's not like it's you know, because at the old ballparks, those quirks came from... Well, they weren't quirks because they weren't quirky. These sort of weird features were, you know, because it's, you know, they couldn't buy the street or something. And Yeah, but now they had it's to just, fit it in. Yeah. yeah, and now it's just, you know, just being like, what would be fun? What would be quirky? And it just right. makes it... Yeah, they have a whole, ready. like, team of, you know, marketing people or whatever, and, like, it's their job to, like, brainstorm how to make this very boring, artificial, uh, optimized thing into something quirky or fun or whatever. Um, And it never really fucking works. Um, And so, yeah, like the fountain in the outfield of uh, the new Tiger Stadium, Comerica Park in Detroit, like, you know, if there's a home run, like there's there's an explosion of the fountain or something, like that's a big thing that all these annoying new Reddit parks do. It's all it's all very tied into like, oh, there's a home run, so there's going to be something that happens. Or the lights go on and off or something. Yeah, and so it's responding to the predominance of the home run. And so, it, and so that, so the, the way that the game changed for the worse with the home run becoming so popular. I mean, the home run's been popular since Babe Ruth, but like it became super dominant in the game in the late nineties with the steroid era and a lot of the, these new parks were built over the last, you know, 20, 25 years or so. Um, and so the park itself is responding to this artificial kind of cheapening of the game. Um, and so it's built around that rather than being, I don't know, part of the like local, um, place where it is, 
you know. So I, the old, I will, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I will say in defense of, like, some of the newer ones, like Camden Yards, it's that old warehouse. It's nice. It's not fake. The Pittsburgh, it's just the skyline is the backdrop. Mm. That's nice. It's not... And, you know, with, like, older parks like Fenway, it's just the being squeezed into that little block. It's mm. With Wrigley, it's also being squeezed in and having the, you know, the rooftops you can see nearby, it's some of the game's loss. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so you had another tweet that I thought was interesting. You said, health is soy, recently. Which I think I agree with. Huh? I tweeted that like, well, I guess I I shouldn't admit to drinking, but oh no, that's that's what influenced the tweet. Oh, so So I don't don't really remember my entire thought (laughs) process at the time, but I I I still agree with what I said. Oh, me too. Yeah, interesting. So that's the origin of of that idea that health is soy. Um. So someone was asking us on Twitter today if you have had beer or what your favorite beer is, I think. Um, the best type of beer. Okay. Uh, and so what is your answer to that for best type of beer? Uh, I mean, like best type or like favorite brand or? Favorite brand. Um, well, of course, I've, I'm, I'm uh... A good young man. I have never alcohol has never touched <laughs> my lips, but Newcastle Brown Ale, I'd say. Oh, nice. Now, good. being a being a Pennsylvania guy, aren't you supposed to say Yingling? Isn't that supposed to be your favorite beer? It's the funny thing about Yingling is that they've pre- tried to pretend like they're a microbrewery in this very <laughs> Reddit way, <laughs> yeah. or you know, like they were just you know one of the the shitty beers that were around, and then they they're like, oh, we're a microbrewery now. Yeah, it, it kind of worked for a minute though. Like you know, I've been in Brooklyn for a while, and so like there was a time when I was here, and like no bars had Yingling, but then all of a sudden it was like, oh, Yingling's everywhere. It's like, oh, Yingling's like a you know craft brew now or something. Um, and then you couldn't because oh, you support Donald Trump. You can't do that, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did they? I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Ah, okay. Is there, where, where the hell is Yingling? Is it like Allentown or something? I think so. And it's like s- super old. Like it's very, very authentic Pennsylvania. Like it doesn't get more authentic yeah. Pennsylvania than Yingling. And also it's, I should say it's Eastern Pennsylvania and I don't really care for that half of the state as much. Ah, so I have to enough. defend like a, a shitty... Beer, I'd say like icy light, just in defense of my my origins. Yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. Interesting. So I didn't know that alcohol was uh, influencing your um, your dialectics. Hmm. It's not, of course, because that would be illegal, <laughs> right? But if it were, then that would explain uh, your idea that health is soy. Um, and I think I agree with that. And so this gets into something else I wanted to talk about is how the 1970s were the last like good time sort of um and how some of us hope that the 2020s will be like 1970s part two in various ways um and so i feel like i don't know the 70s was the last time when people didn't really care too much about health and like you could smoke and drink and you know it wasn't this sort of neoliberal scolding of anything that was (laughs) unhealthy because it's everything that's fun is unhealthy of course it's yeah. just become this part of this sort of pretty 
personalized sort of conception of the world where you're just an individual consumer and you have to make the right choices instead of being a member of society that should behave as if they're they're in a society and and can have fun. Right, yeah. Um, And so in the 70s, you could, I think, smoke on airplanes, you know, smoke, drink, wherever you want. Um, And with athletes, too, like in the 70s with the NBA especially, you always hear about how, like, oh, the players in the 70s in the NBA, they're all coked up. They were smoking cigarettes at halftime. They weren't, like, lifting weights or, like, jogging even, really. They would, like, practice, and that was their exercise. And they wouldn't even practice that much, probably. Um, and with baseball players, too, like, you know, they were not Doc Ellis threw then. a no-hitter on LSD. Exactly, yeah. So with uh, baseball players, especially back in the 70s, they were doing all kinds of drugs. They weren't lifting weights. They weren't, like... Baseball players today, they're watching endless like videotape of you know themselves hitting to try to perfect their their swing and so on. Um, and I feel like you didn't see that in the seventies. Um, all that shit started more in the eighties. I would say, that, like in general, I think like the health fixation, health craze things sort yeah. of started in the eighties. Like started getting you know dietitians and more. Yeah, and like jogging, like. Nobody jogged until like 1981. You know? Yeah, I mean, literally, like I think like <laughs> the the first I think like New Zealand is where it started, and these like oh my joggers God. would be like stopped by the police to be like, oh, "Did you like rob a <laughs> bank? What are you running for?" They're like, hey, yeah. "Nine light days, exercise." <laughs> Fuck! I didn't know New Zealand invented God. Everything bad comes from New Zealand yeah. and Australia. Jesus Reddit Christ. Island. <laughs> the reddit islands rather there's two of them new reddit new redditland um and even like i don't know as much as i love larry bird so larry bird and magic johnson they're often credited with like saving and revitalizing the nba so like in the late 70s the nba was at kind of a low point as i was saying the players were coked up they were you know it was a very low like caliber of play and then larry bird and magic johnson come in in 1979 1980 um, and they elevate the whole game and like, you know, Larry Bird was very, like, he was a very big jogger. Like he's talked about this in the past and he was like, I didn't stretch or lift weights or anything. Like I, I would always run a lot. Um, and like he tried too hard almost like I love Larry Bird, but like he wasn't really having fun. No, he was a white boy in a black man's game. So he couldn't have fun. Like if he had fun, then they would have eaten him alive. So yeah. he had to like practice so hard and like his whole fucking life was just in the gym like shooting hoops and just practicing all the time i'm like that's not fun you know and that sort of influenced the whole direction of the game and you know of course i love larry bird don't get me wrong but i do think that you can see sort of the transition into the neoliberal period with him um but at the same time larry bird uh, did drink a lot. Like there are lots of stories of how, you know, he would go out to the bars in Boston all the time. He would get in fights with people. Um, there was one teammate, uh, Rick Roby, who was another white guy who wasn't very good, but he was on the Celtics and Bird kept him around just because he was like his drinking buddy, and they would just go out and have fun all the time. Um, but they traded him pretty early in Bird's career because, like, you know, he was just getting Larry Bird drunk all the time. So they're like, we got to get rid of this guy. Um, and so Bird got better after that, um, but he stopped having quite as much fun. Um, so yes, health is soy, 
And I think, so I'd like to hear you talk about if you agree with the idea that the 2020s could be 1970s part two and how I think, I don't know, with coronavirus and COVID world, everyone's been so obsessed with, oh, we have to protect ourselves and be healthy and so on. And I think people are sort of sick of that after a year and a half of this. So like maybe people will start to reject health and return to the 70s in that sense. You just have to hope that people will sort of reject the sort of paranoia, even though like if you're vaccinated, if you get COVID now, it's fine, but people are still terrified. So yeah, like if the, I think decades of crisis produce great art and great culture in general. Yes. And I think we see with a bunch of trends, you could look at the economy, you could look at climate, you could look Mm. at COVID, (laughs) you could look at whatever, and you see parallels with the 70s, you know, with the oil crisis, all that, you know, just the general collapse in society. And I I think, like, if you look at, I mean, this is just, you know, if you look at, like, where punk comes from, which sort of Mm. influenced so much music after that it came out of the 70s late 70s which hell wasn't a great time but it produced great culture i think that's what we if you know if, if things are going to get worse we just have to hope that we can sort of get at least some of that sort of the you know i think the, the dialectics of crisis produce great mm. art and i think we have to hope that that's what happens things are only going to get worse aren't they oh absolutely yeah and yeah that's a very good point that the 70s was this period of kind of dissolution and collapse and there was this sense that like things were falling apart like everyone sort of knew it um like this malaise and so on but as you were saying it did produce great art in terms of punk um and movies like the 70s is the best period for american movies or any movies ever really um and so i think the 2020s is very much going to be a period of collapse. Uh, I don't see any way around that. Like unless Biden builds back better. Um, Does uh, Malism as he is a Maoist. <laughs> it's important to remember. Yes. You don't just tweet women hold up half the sky for no reason. Good <laughs> message that you intend to. <laughs> he's only countering revisionist China because he opposes the capitalist rotor revisionist dingist new bourgeoisie that has taken power in that country. That's right. This is very much what Joe Biden believes. Um, I didn't know that he tweeted a Mao quote. I guess yeah, I he, remember that. Yeah, yeah okay. He tweeted, huh. he's, and he's, he's used it in like speeches too. It's not just a one-off <laughs> thing. Like he said it was a Chinese proverb. Like it was I mean, he's not wrong. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fucking great that he calls Mao quotes Chinese proverbs. Um, but yeah, I... Maybe uh, Maoist Joe will turn things around and we'll have, you know, a cultural revolution. Um, I don't necessarily see it happening. But yeah, so if the 2020s is this period of collapse, which I think it's going to be, um, like what even would be good art anymore? It's like, you know. Because everything, any, anything that's sort of a bit off the beaten path, it's a sort of artificial quirkiness. Like, you see yeah. all these, like, you know, supposedly, like, you know, super out there creative people. They're just, like, industry <laughs> plants. It's not like, you know, just some kids screwing around and thinking, hey, maybe we should try something new. Right. It's this very safe 
radicalism, this like controlled kind of, you know, avant-garde or rebelliousness. Like you have to have a fucking resume to even get there in the first place. Um, and like, you would think that it would be easier to have kind of countercultural uh, movements and radical art and so on with the internet and the way things are now. But I don't know, the, the internet it's making things more bland and it's making like, it's all about just building your personal brand. Um, and people don't want to do anything that's going to like fuck their brand up or like, you know, yeah. take risks really. And so the internet should be this thing that opens up all kinds of new possibilities, but it's kind of like narrowing things down and making people more afraid and more like, you know, sunken in and more, you know, not really willing to put shit out there. That's wild. Um, yeah. Because that's how neoliberalism works. It's a sort of self-discipline that yeah. is a sort of enforced sort of mindset that mm-hmm. you know flows down, and it's all about you know acting the best for yourself and optimizing yourself. So you can't be out there because you can't be. You have to, you know, it's all everyone for themselves, and they have to be this very optimized, this very bland. And anything that's, you know, a bit different has to be this very artificial quirkiness. Right. It has to be a difference that's, like, immediately understandable. Yeah. Like, you have to be able to recognize, like, okay, yeah, that's an acceptable a, kind of... That's a difference that I've seen before. It's, it's, you know, it's what identity politics works on. It's a sort of, oh, I've heard of that thing, so I've heard these people have had it rough, so I... I think your differences are very nice. Right, yeah. And so we don't even really hear much about difference. It's all about diversity. And diversity is, you know, a form of difference that isn't really different. Diversity is like a homogenous sort of difference. Because it's all built on the same sort of cultural mindset. It's not built on... Yeah, it's just all very artificial. Yeah, artificial quirkiness um so this is a big critique that you have of neoliberalism and its influence in culture and politics and art in all kinds of ways um and i think you've extended this critique of artificial quirkiness uh even to women is that correct i think it goes for i mean i guess you could extend it to men as well but yeah perhaps i'm a straight man i do tend to think about women (laughs) As you should. That's right. Because um, even with men, it's this sort of, you know, it's this coming up with, you know, you know, I'm the, the male feminist and I'm, you know, a good ally and I, yeah, you know, and the sort of quirky, you know, sort of, you know, where it's like I wear a plaid button down shirt and have like curly hair, very annoying glasses. It's just this very, <laughs> it's, it's where it's like, it's supposed to be different, but like, it's literally all the same. Yeah, it's like corporate difference, you know. Um, and so how do you get out of that? Because, like, it seems so hegemonic and so totalizing, this kind of corporatized difference and this, like, diversity in place of difference. Um, and, like, if you try to go against it, then you immediately become, I don't know, like, anti-woke, or yeah, but like, you either become you either fall into being a Republican, which is another very artificial, you know, that thing of like 
making like 500,000 a year, but still being like, I'm a good country boy and I wear boots and drive <laughs> a pickup truck. Right. Or, or you just fall into being, you know, an annoying contrarian that just defines themselves by what they're not rather than, I think the only way out is basically being a bit autistic and just being like, <laughs> I'm sticking to a couple things. Yeah. I'm not changing. I don't understand why you're mad at me. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. You just have to pick two or three things and just obsessively focus on them. And yeah, the world, you have to make the world kind of come around to you, basically. Yeah. Um, but that's hard to do, I guess, because people want to be accepted. They want to be popular. And so much of everything is about, you know, building your brand on social media, getting popularity, whatever. So people will do what's easy to kind of gain acceptance quickly. Um so you have to not do that, but you also have to not just be like a contrarian for the sake of being a contrarian and not just be like, oh, you know, wokeness is a new religion. I'm super anti-woke, whatever, because that's boring, too. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's just another safe typecast because like you look at yeah. those people and, you know, they talk about like Cuba or, you know, any any proletarian government in the global south will be like, oh, that's, you know, awful. You know, it's a evil regime they need to be overthrown it's not it's not anything revolutionary or unique it's just being a different type of corporate yeah definitely um and so i don't know like are there going to be good movies in this decade is there going to be good music like for a while like in the 2010s there was kind of this moment we're like oh stand-up comedy is the new fucking punk rock um, but that's, that was never true. And it seems like stand-up comedy is kind of over as a thing. Like nobody really cares about it, but yeah. I don't know. Like it seemed like for a minute that was kind of like a possibility for some kind of new, I don't know. Like stand-up isn't a new art form, but like it was going to be ascendant in this kind of way. But I don't know. Stand-up comedians are very annoying. Who the fuck wants to go to a comedy club? You got to buy, you know, all this, all these food and drinks to even go there. And like, you and know, there's a certain type of person that does comedy. Yeah, right. Um, and it does attract a lot of, I don't know, artificially quirky people. Um, yeah. So it's many like, of them uh, women. Because it's, it's it, what the whole stand-up comedy thing has become. It's become like, it's become Nanette, basically. <laughs> it's just, I mean, there was that, I think it was a Felix Biederman tweet where it's like every like Netflix stand-up show is like, you know, like called like the triggered AIDS hour or it's like <laughs> listing off my traumas. Right, and it's just you know, it's just that very artificial nonsense. It's not even comedy. It's just playing the right notes to a certain crowd. Yeah, and it's more like a one man show or a one woman show kind of thing. Um, and that used to be something that, like, if you were a very established comedian and you wanted to get serious, you'd be like, okay, I'm doing a new hour where it's going to be me with like a lamp, um, like sitting on a fucking stool for an hour talking about my dad or something. Um, and that was like a separate thing sort of, but now it's like, that's what comedy is. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not funny, but I don't know, like Nanette, Hannah Gadsby, that was like 2018, I think. Um, yeah. Not even that long ago, but it already feels like a totally different time. So like, I think the culture has moved on from that, but I think there's also podcasts, nothing that replaces it. Yeah. I think it's sort of, that's sort of become the new media. Craze. 
yeah, and most of them he, are terrible. Unfortunately. Of course, yeah. Except for LWI and the Daily Dialectic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a few and a few others. Um R.E.P. Pogs of War. Real heads yeah. will remember. Yeah, that's uh an old school one. Um but even podcasts, it seems like that's sort of running out of steam as a thing. Like it seems new, like, but it's not really. It was like 2017 when I was like, oh, come town. And now the only people who listen to come town <laughs> are like, you know, it's people like James Healy. Or it's just a sort of, you know, people are like, oh, you know, Nick said, oh, you're Chinese. Isn't that so funny? That is fucking funny. Uh, I mean, like Chinese, Capo, yeah. it used to feel like. I mean, come town as well. They used to feel like, you know, things were like people would be like, did you listen to the latest episode? You know, he said, that's what you think. And now yeah. it's just kind of like, oh, I guess they're still doing that. <laughs> yeah, it just becomes like work to keep up with it almost. It's like, oh, I have all these podcasts downloaded and like I'm weeks behind. Like it's yeah. like, jo- it's it's like, like a job it- kind of to listen to all that shit. Yeah. It's like, oh, I don't, you know, like you just, yeah, you just lose track. It just it feels like, oh my God, I got to listen to all of these. And then it's, you know, they're all kind of the same. So then you. Yeah, and so it all kind of blends together. Um, I don't know. Uh, so I guess this is why we need a cultural revolution, right? To kind of shake us out of this to some extent. We need to proletarianize culture again because all of these different artistic forms and cultural forms, they've become bourgeoisified, they've become stale, they're kind of dead ends. Um, and so how do we, I don't know, shake that up? It's a very difficult task, isn't it? It's it's a I, thing where even like I in the past, do it. in the past there were like even you know even in capitalist societies there were certain you know like sports or certain sports at least and you know certain areas where it was allowed to be a proletarian sphere. But then hmm. I think I guess through you could say you know the enrichment of the first world through imperialism, hmm. there's been this sort of trend among upwardly mobile people to sort of bourgeoisify their culture so that instead of you know going down to a dirty stadium or yeah. you know a, you know a dirty hall to see some weird show they could just you know watch something comfortable on tv that seems respectable so they could feel respectable right yeah and so culture should not be respectable really it shouldn't be about respectability it should be i don't know it should be about true human expression. Yeah, and that's not And that's messy. It's very messy. Yeah, humans are not, <laughs> are not respectable. Um, we're messy, disgusting creatures. Um, I know I certainly am. Um, but yeah, and any, I don't know. And, mm-hmm. and anything that sort of contradicts that hate to talk about cancel culture but <laughs> i guess i guess you could say it's a sort of way of enforcing that in a way and sort of enforcing a sort of very upper middle class mindset of you know here's the good things to say yeah everything's got to be respectable right um and so again this is sort of the dialectical question that we've been talking about i guess um how do you <clears throat> go against that kind of upper middle class, bourgeois, respectability, cultural politics that's taking over everything um, without becoming, you know, 
like an epic anti-woke like i hate cancel culture wokeness is the new religion kind of guy because those people suck too you know i think the irony is that as culture has become bland everything has become culture i mean politics Mm. has become culture it's been about you know are you more of a, a liberal type of person and it's not really about issues i mean what the fuck's the real difference it's just been about you know you don't want those guys you know they're they do the, you know, they live differently. Yeah. They watch different TV shows. They watch, mm-hmm. you know, they just have this very, you know, they talk differently. It's just everything's become culture wars. And that's made politics whole. And even though it's made culture everything, it's made culture nothing. Mm, that's a very good point. I love that. That culture is everywhere. And so it's nowhere now. Um, and so do you think in the 70s, um, Cult, like culture was more, I don't know, tied to various places in society. It wasn't everywhere. So you would like go to a show, you'd go to a movie, you would go to a concert, whatever. And it was this very separate kind of space. And you didn't really know what you were going to see necessarily, but you knew it was going to be something totally removed from your normal experience. Um, whereas now, I think you want your regular experience to be kind of reflected back at you and like you're not looking to be transported or to be i don't know um to have something different to have an encounter with difference really you're looking for something safe something that reinforces what you already think and when it's carried to the extreme with you know identity politics and and art and so on uh there's this idea that like you should see yourself represented to yourself in art that art's just about like you seeing yourself there and it kind of like confirms your it, it just it's supposed to make you feel better sort of but art shouldn't yeah. make you feel better and it shouldn't remind you of yourself it's i think good art and good culture should make you feel bad <laughs> and it should estrange you from yourself right yeah i think it's art is about understanding some aspect of the world that is different and even if it's, you know, you know, some art that represents someone a lot like you, it should be, it kind of represents something, you know, it represents a different aspect of it. It takes a different angle to it and it doesn't, it's not just like you're this and you're valid. It's about, you know, here's a, you know, if you're a person like this, it's, you know, this type of person, but, you know, it sort of provides the perspective of someone different so that you see yourself differently even if you're being represented in art right and so if you see someone different that allows you to sort of see yourself and so if you're just seeing a representation of yourself you remain kind of estranged from yourself and you know yourself less sort of and so to like actually learn about yourself um you have to see something totally separate from you that's how you like you know that's i guess that's dialectics um and the other approach is sort of mechanical that like oh we're just like the same thing reflected back to you will create some kind of progress if we just like you know homogenize everything um and again it's this artificial difference is that like oh we're, we're gonna have you know um movies about like i don't know what if spider man was black or something and they make that 10 times yeah exactly um and, and you're so, not really even if you're seeing yourself you're not seeing yourself because you're seeing an idealized version of yourself 
Exactly. Right. And so it's going to be what if Spider-Man was black, but, you know, they're taking all the rough edges off of yeah. what it means to be black. Like, like black Spider-Man isn't going to be fucking, you know, he's not going to be spouting like Black Panther Party ideas yeah. or he's not going to be quoting Malcolm be, X. He's not, not, <laughs> yeah, not going to live in, you know, like a rough neighborhood and, you know, have to yeah. deal with the adversities of working class person would deal with and then, you know. Be a you know a person that you can say that is you know flawed in some ways, but it is you know even if you're trying to you know create something that a, a black person could look up to, mm-hmm. it's it shouldn't be a perfect person. It should be something that's it should be a human basically. It shouldn't just be like you know a uh, this guy's perfect and he does all the perfect things. And right. I think I guess that's part of the obsession with superheroes is that's mm. this perfection of this person who's i mean perfect because they're a superhero and they have to you know they can't be they're only like you in very artificial ways and not dealing with not having flaws as a person just being you know quirky right yeah and so superheroes are quirky in a very annoying way like the marvel aesthetic they're always doing these annoying one-liners all the time um and i think everyone's sick of it so they're quirky but also like perfect and so that, to me, seems like a big part of the annoying neoliberal formula. It's like, oh, we're perfect, we're self-optimized, oh, but we're also goofy and wacky and quirky in very fucking predictable ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so this, this point's often been made that, like, this obsession with superhero movies over the last, I don't know, 15 or so years or more now, um, that, like, people who defend it, they're like, oh, this is our modern mythology. Just like, you know, thousands of years ago in greece they had their myths zeus poseidon hera and so on we have fucking like iron man and captain america and spider-man um and that's sort of how it's justified because there's this idea that like oh like the ancient greek myths like that's considered great art and culturally significant so why shouldn't our modern myths be considered you know real art and culturally uh, culturally significant um but the real myths of our society i think should be athletes because mm. they're they're because i think we we do live in in some ways the age of reason since you know the enlightenment i suppose so i think mm-hmm. instead of you know having supernatural heroes heroes should be people and they should be like people flawed which i mean most mm-hmm. athletes are yeah, definitely. Where it's, you know, where it's like a person, you know, like, I mean, you could take any examples, you know, Babe Ruth died, you know, a bit of a bit of a drinker, but also, you know, one of the best players, probably the best player ever. And, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's a, and, you know, like Mary, you know, Maris breaking the, his Ruth's home run record, you know, he was, his hair was falling out because he didn't want to do interviews and it was right. That is a real interaction a real person would have with things in their life, but that's not what superheroes have. They just have, you know, when Thanos comes or whatever. <laughs> I don't know how those movies go. Yeah, you're not missing much. Um, yeah, that that's and so those are good examples of like athletes being heroes but being very flawed and human because they are human they're doing this kind of superhuman thing of performing 
you know, at the highest level in this very difficult way. And like baseball, I think is the best example because that's that's the hardest game. Like nothing's harder yeah. than hitting. And it's a also major a sport league pitch. where you, it's also a sport where you can be a bit athletic. Although I guess that's that's becoming less of the case. But like if you look at a guy like Kentis Colby, pitcher for the Pirates in the late seventies, he was. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't look like an athlete at all. He has glasses. He's very lanky and. Yeah. But he was an amazing pitcher. And it's, it's you know, it's, I guess you could say, a real-life hero, to use a very artificial phrase that gets overused way too much. But it's that sort of ability to, to be a human, yet to be more than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, you know, someone, you know, you could say, hey, that guy's kind of like me but he's also flawed and he's also a real human. Yeah. And like they could do interesting things beyond just the game, but it wasn't like contrived or artificial the way it is now. Um, And so like now, you know, if a player like, Oh, I have my social justice cause or whatever. um, And it just seems sort of like tacked on or like, it just doesn't seem organic. I don't know. Um, But with, players back in the day so jimmy pearsall do you know him very well so he uh was a center fielder for the uh played for a bunch of different teams um because he was fucking crazy so he bounced around a lot uh so he played from 1950 to 1967 for the red sox that's the main reason i know him um that's the main team he played for play for the Red Sox. Uh, and so he had like crazy anxiety problems. Like he was nuts. He was a very talented player. Um, so he, he had bipolar disorder. Yeah. Um, and so they made a book about his bipolar disorder and like how he struggled with it. He was so he was able to play in the majors, but he was constantly struggling with really horrible crippling bipolar disorder. Um, and they made a movie about it that was really popular at the time. Uh, Anthony Perkins plays Jimmy Pearsall. You might enjoy it. Um, and so I think that's an example of what you're talking about, about how athletes, you know, they are superhuman in this way, but they, you know, they're still human and they have to try to overcome those flaws. Um, and if ball, ball players were, you know, committed to some cause, it'd be like Bill Lee, where he was just, you know, casually a Maoist. It wasn't this sort <laughs> of contrived yeah. where it's like, you know, Kershaw putting out some statement, and, you know, black background white text where it says like you know we need to take <laughs> black lives matter seriously and then he goes to the right. white house and yeah right and so that seems sort of separate from who he is or what he's doing um and so i think the best example uh of a baseball player who's like a hero kurt flood um who nobody really knows about you do because you're yeah. a student of of history and of baseball um, proletarian heroes who should be in yeah. the Hall of Fame, by the way. Right. So talk about why Kurt Flood is a proletarian hero. Well, he was with the, the Cardinals, and he was... Not, uh, not your favorite team. Yeah, not a team I like, but they, I mean, I love Bob Gibson. I love Kurt Flood. They had some good players. I like yeah. uh, Musial because he's from Denora, Pennsylvania, in my neck of the woods. And, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, but... Uh, Kirk Flood was uh, about to be traded from St. Louis to the Phillies, and Philadelphia mm. is a very racist place, and Kurt Flood was a black man. Yes. So he did not want to be traded. 
but you know there was still the reserve clause where he would have to re- basically retire for a year until he could sign again and you know he he said ridiculous and he talked to Mr. Marv Miller who was then the around then the uh head of the MLBPA mm-hmm. and he challenged the reserve clause and it worked but for that he was blacklisted and is now basically forgotten about except by people who take labor history seriously yeah very good um and so i think that's a great example of how race and economic issues can kind of come together so like he did have a problem with racism but he tied it into you know the labor relation in a very powerful way um and he was successful and i think that's why he's been so punished and so like you know disappeared from history uh because they don't want us knowing about him and you look at guys like you know dave parker and al oliver too where they were i mean they were also to tie into some of these things they were also big coke guys Yes, and then uh, I mean, they, they bought their their coke actually from the guy who played the pirate parrot, the mascot for the pirates. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were you know that was the the age of the real collusion, which is when mm. uh, I mean it still goes on when owners will basically fuck over players so they get the best deal out of them, and for uh, to, you know speaking out about that, they've been fucked over completely yeah and also they've you know used the excuse of you know the coke stuff because now being a real human is a you know any flaw a person has as a person is it's not just some sort of fake quirky thing can be used against you right exactly um and so this is an interesting point that in the 70s baseball players were doing a lot of drugs like they were doing LSD, they were doing coke, you know. And baseball was good in the 70s. Um, so it didn't like negatively impact the game, I guess, in the way that it did basketball. Um, but then in the 90s, we see more drugs in baseball, but they're not fun drugs. They're steroids. They're drugs that like optimize them to make them better at their jobs. Um, but they were taking, so in, in the 70s, they were taking drugs that like didn't help them with their jobs. It helped them have more fun, basically. But I think that made them better at baseball because, you know, if you want to be good at baseball, you got to relax. You got to be confident. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Uh, basically, I think baseball players should do coke. Yeah, and that would be that would be better. I mean, we all know the this is the premise of for love of the game where the, you know, basically pussy is basically another drug. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the guy's just thinking about that and he throws a perfect game. Yeah, that's a very powerful movie. Very powerful movie. Kind of overlooked. Because um, like Kevin Costner was past his prime at that point, and so nobody like expected him to do another great movie. But it kind of worked for that movie because he plays like an aging pitcher. So it's like yeah. this perfect you know, confluence of like the actor and the role in the movie. Um, when did that movie come out? Like 2002 or something like that? I think so. The love of the game. 1999. Okay, wow. Yeah, um, probably the last great sports movie. Like they don't really yeah, make sports movies at all anymore, do they? They don't, and it's just yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think because now it's just a lot of sports documentaries. Yeah, and like that's that just turns sports into like I don't know information 
or I don't know. I don't really like yeah. documentaries. Do you watch documentaries? Sometimes. I think documentaries can be nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they can be nice sometimes. Um, so that little anecdote you told about the guys buying Coke from the Pittsburgh mascot, where'd you pick that up? You're reading uh, The Boys of Summer, right? Is, is that where you got that? Yeah, I fin- but I, I got that. Uh, it's something my dad has told me many times. Oh, okay. my part of the oral tradition of Pittsburgh sports. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Um, but you are reading Boys of Summer now, right? Yeah, or I finished, finished it. it. Of course, yeah, because you read very fast. Um, so any interesting tidbits from that? So explain to the folks at home what that book's all about. So it's uh, Roger Kahn, a sports reporter, spending, I think, the, what is it, the 52 and 53 seasons with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Mm. And then going back and meeting these guys. And you really see that... I think he says the way he puts it is that it's best to see athletes not as, you know, like, you know, as like baseball players, but as baseball men. Hmm. Because, like especially with, you know, he really looks into these guys and how they deal with, you know, the stresses of playing in the majors and, you know, dealing with race, especially with the Dodgers. And then what mm. the hell do you do after you play baseball? These guys yeah. all end up in very weird places. Yeah, and especially back then, because they weren't making a ton of money, right? So yeah. like, they couldn't retire. They had to get like other jobs after they finished playing for the most part, like right, like let like big stars, I guess, didn't have to because they could make money selling autographs or doing endorsements or whatever. Yeah, but as like uh, thinking, who is uh, Alabine went up to uh, back home to Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and just started like a sportswear company. Uh, yeah. Don Shuba went out back to Youngstown and worked for the post office. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think only, like, I mean, of course, uh, Roy Campanella couldn't work because he was paraplegic. And uh, Jackie yeah. Robinson, I think, had got enough gigs that he didn't really have to have a real <laughs> job. Yeah, he just became like a, I don't know, like just being a hero was his job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I th- like, uh, I think, yeah, who is it that, uh, there's a couple guys from sort of my neck of the woods, but he goes, I forget who it is that he goes, I think it's somewhere up by the Juniata, one of these guys went back home to, and he just, he's just working at the, uh, like the Elks Club bar, and he's just, you know, in the middle <laughs> of the night, these guys are just being, like, super racist. And they're just, because it, it, it just... I think shows the human side of all players that gets lost and these very artificial yeah. personalities that are constructed for them. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea of, you know, they're not baseball players or baseball men, I think is interesting. So they had to, you know, be human beings and be men their whole lives. Um, and so they weren't these kind of baseball robots that players are now. Um, because now, you know, if you're a baseball player, you can make so much money that you play for, you know, five to 10 years or more. Uh, and then you never have to work again, of course. And you don't even have to like do autographs or whatever. You can just sort of retire on, on your money. So you don't really have to be a person or like there, be a Ted. man at all. Huh? Ben? You there? 
Ben? We're having technical difficulties. Uh, I think Ben has died. Uh, <laughs> ben? I can hear you now. Oh, okay. There we go. I was worried. <laughs> um, I jumped to conclusions and told the listeners that you had died. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think the players were more interesting back then, I guess because, you know, they weren't paid as much, uh, and so they were more proletarian, and the game was more proletarian. Um, and so now players are kind of removed from their working class roots, and so the, the game also loses its proletarian aura. Um, and it's just not as much fun. Um, so there were some other things that uh, the, the guys talked about in that book, right? That I think we were discussing. Yeah, what uh, specifically did you want to get into? Oh, just uh, I think there was one anecdote about one of the players talking about um, women he fucked. Um, I, it wasn't a, a player. I think it was, I think it might have been another reporter. Oh, where okay. He talked about, you know, he was lamenting that, like, you know, the last five mm. women I fucked, it was, you know. I could only manage, you know, like Filipino women and black women and, Jew- and Jewish women. But he <laughs> says, he concludes, the Jew is the best fuck. Mm, yeah, I think uh, probably true. Although there's nothing wrong with Filipino women. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually haven't read that book. I should check it out. Um, it's very good. Since you so live you, in... Now, hmm? That's right, Yeah. Living in Brooklyn, that would be a good one to yeah. read for sure. I've always thought about like meeting like a, a girl on Twitter that's from Brooklyn and you know, like <laughs> going up to meet her, but then just like going to Ebbets where Ebbets Field was and just, just like, standing just, there. Like, yeah. But uh, I, I had to read a, a thing for school, like a summer assignment wasn't very interesting, but uh, I don't know what I'll read next. Hmm. Um, well, what you gotta read is Byung Chul Han, right? Because that's what women like. But do they still like him? It's been a long... <laughs> I haven't heard anything. I, I, I mean, I don't keep up with that area of Twitter, and I don't know yeah. what... I mean, it's just been so long. It was... Yeah, I guess that was like more of like a 2019 thing. Yeah. Where like, uh, like certain... if you read Mark Fisher, you might like... Byung Chul Han. Yeah, and like a certain type of woman was very into that. Um yeah. But yeah, I what, think how, who's that? Who's that lady? We're just talking about women now from Twitter. Who's that lady that really <laughs> liked her that isn't on there anymore? Oh, uh, Allison Balsam. Yeah, she was nice. She was great. Yeah, she was one of the best. Um, but you know, anyone who's like actually a decent person usually gets the fuck off of Twitter. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's good for her that she's gone. Um, but yeah, no, she was great. She worked in a bookstore for a lot of years, so she knew, you know all kinds of things about books. Um, <laughs> she actually uh, turned me on to Byung-Chul Han. Um, and so yeah. I read like all of, all of his books to like impress her or whatever, um, which, which is easy to do because his books are like 60 pages long. Yeah, that's the nice thing about philosophy books. They're either like 50 pages long or they're like 800 pages long. If you, <laughs> if you read like the 50-page philosophers, then you can be like, yeah, I've read all this stuff. Pretty much, yeah. Because the guys who write the 50-page philosophy books they'll write like five books, but they're all the same. So you just have yeah. to read like one of their 50 page like books. And you, and you get it. There's no, there's no yes. way Zizek in every book is coming up with new stuff. He's just being like, 
just tell them like the same like old jokes like you know uh, like literally the same joke about how like german ideology like you can tell like the difference between german and french ideology by like the way their toilets operate or whatever you know he's told that joke a million yeah. fucking times um and like a few other old like soviet jokes or whatever um and i guess that was charming for a while but i don't know um you still i still see there's a bookstore around here that's the kind of place that would sell stuff and i saw saw when i was lost up there they had one of his new ones out it's like man he's in his bag can't, can't, <laughs> can't disagree with that at least yeah um so we've talked a lot about baseball yeah. <laughs> we have solved uh we have fully theorized baseball and i think uh people are waiting for that um Let's see some other questions before I... Uh, ah, okay. Well, you are known as one of the foremost experts on uh, soccer. Um, so someone asked, how dialectic was, Eng- was England England losing the European Championship on home soil? Very good question. I have to think about that. Yeah. It's a tough I, th- I think what it achieved was somehow the dialectic of being like the most racist outcome because the mm. all the black England players missed their penalties. It's just somehow more racist than England winning or even more racist than just Italy winning. It's very impressive. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. But there is also, it's, it is also, I think, I mean, soccer also is representative of society in general. And I think you see that in the way the England's, you know, I think the England national team is representative of that. You get this sort of the culture wars about, you know, taking a knee. Is that, is that virtue signaling? Is it worth doing? And then, you know, like the, some, some, uh, you know, like English people, when a bunch of drunk England fans tried to storm in the Wembley without tickets, they're like, this is our January 6th. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then, you know, that just sort of, you just see English society in microcosm in soccer, especially the national team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, again, that's one of the great things about sports is that you can see all of society and culture in sort of microcosm. And that's what dialectics is all about. It's about seeing the universal in the particular and the particular in the universal. Um, so you can definitely do that with, with soccer. I, I know nothing about soccer. Um, I remember, you know, I was growing up in New England's uh, I watched the fucking New England Revolution MLS League. Alexi Lalas, I remember him. Um, it just wasn't on my radar to like actually watch European soccer. Um, yeah, because American it, soccer sucks. Oh, completely. The, yeah, the two the two types of people who care about soccer in this country are like you know like Latin American people, or it's very like liberal upper middle class. Well, not necessarily liberal, but very very upper middle class white person. Very, you know, the, the the Reddit constituency, basically. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, okay, well, it's a very good answer. Um, another question was about asking you to comment on German-Greek relations. It's a very good one. I think Germany should be nicer to Greece. <laughs> I think everyone should be nicer to Greece. Yeah, Britain people, especially. Yeah, people take us for granted. Um, and at a certain Greece point, invented dialectics. That's right. A lot of, but they also invented democracy, which is so soy. I want a good regime. 
Yeah, but you know, that's part of dialectics too, is that we created the best thing, dialectics. So we had to create the worst thing too, democracy, to kind of balance it out. You know. Um, yeah, I think Germans and Greeks do share a very powerful relation because we are the most dialectical people. Dialectics started with the Greeks, um, but it got kind of revitalized by Germans in the 19th century with Hegel. Um, and the Germans in the 19th century did think of themselves as kind of like the new Athens. They were trying to be this cultural powerhouse in the modern world, the way that Athens was in the ancient world. But the weird thing about Germany is that they were also Sparta. They were also very militaristic in a way that Athens wasn't. Um, and so I think that's another dialectical thing about Germany is that it was kind of, it's, it was Athens and Sparta um, in one place. Uh, yeah, because German reunification is very weird because you have the, you know, the liberal phase with ending in 1848 and then you have Bismarck finishing the job. So you said it sort of get this very weird mix of very like liberal romantic tendencies and then, you know, yeah. blood and iron. Right. Yeah. Um, and you see that with Nietzsche too. Like he's very much, you know, talking about art and culture being very important, but underneath it all is this very, you know, blood and iron, blood and soil politics that's kind of like submerged and buried um but it's definitely there and this is something that me and you have talked about um my hero and your hero domenico lacerdo the anti-revisionist marxist historian wrote a great book about nietzsche uh he wrote it 20 years ago but it like just got published or translated into english uh last year because there's a widespread conspiracy against him against nietzsche or against lacerdo i guess against nietzsche too but lacerdo because i think someone <laughs> I think Verso owns the rights to his stuff in English, and then someone someone emailed him about his excellent book on Stalin, and then got a very snooty response about how you know that's trash. We won't publish that. Oh my god! There definitely is a conspiracy against them. Yeah, um, and so yeah, that book on Nietzsche by Lacerdo definitely brings out that kind of German dialectic of romanticism, but also militarism um, in this very powerful way. Um, yeah, German-Greek relations. Uh, we had a question. What are those damn phones doing to young people? What's the deal with these goddamn phones? Probably not good. Probably it's not also great. fine. Most things are fine in the end. Most things are not good, but fine. Yeah, like things that, I mean, I said earlier, things that are bad for you are very fun. So. Yeah, because health the, is soy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, destroying so, your I mean like the most fun things people do are like destroying their health. That's pretty much all I ever do. Um and I have lots of fun all the time. Um Yeah, I think and you know, I always bring things back to Nietzsche, but he he talks about this in his autobiography uh Ecce Homo that he would like think so much that he made himself sick and then he had to like think his way back to health sort of and so he was constantly doing this dialectic of like sickness and health is that he would like you know drive himself crazy with these fucking insane ideas and writing these books that no one had ever fucking seen before um to get all the ideas in his head but then to actually write the book 
he had to become healthy. And so he would go on these long marches and he would, you know, be careful about what he ate and whatever. Um, and so I think that's one of the secrets to Nietzsche's success is that he was success. I sound like a fucking LinkedIn guy. Top 10 Nietzsche success secrets um, is that there was this dialectic of sickness and health. Um, and so now everything's just about health. And so we lose, you know, the other side of it. And that's where, you know, actual health comes from through engaging with a kind of with negativity and with kind of sickness. Ted, I lost you for about a minute there, but I'm sure it was very correct what you said. <laughs> lost me meaning like you couldn't hear me or I could not hear you. Ah, yes. Um eh, I was just talking about Nietzsche and dialectics and so on. Um Ah. We had a question. Funny events in the history of Eastern European football. I guess like all the ethnic stuff is funny, I guess. <laughs> yes. Like the, the Red Star Dinamo Zagreb riot. I guess mm, that's okay. funny. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the cool things about European sports and soccer or football, uh, especially, is that like it is a lot about ethnic tension and, you know, that kind of real difference between the countries and like you're seeing it kind of play out in this very dramatic way and then we don't also there's that that sort of that sort of halfway class consciousness that a lot of europeans have where you know like they know like oh this team's a a working class team this team's a bourgeois Mm. team but they're not really you know they don't take that sort of consciousness and do anything with it right yeah hmm and so like what's a working class like baseball team in america the pirates i guess i guess like the midwestern teams but then it's it's just so blurry because it's they're city teams they're not regional teams i mean at one point like pittsburgh is a you know it sort of has this identity as a working class city and but also at one point you know some of the richest men in the world lived in pittsburgh so it's just it's just the sports in america don't have that same particularity and because of that they don't have that same consciousness i guess also just because america isn't class conscious at all right yeah and so like detroit um is another good example of that i think because they have you know they've always had very wealthy people there but it's also been you know the city of industry and very proletarian city um so it's kind of both which i you know everything's sort of mixed together in america so you can't really see those clear lines necessarily um yeah, those were all the questions. Um, okay, how long have we been talking for, Ben? I don't know. Almost uh, two hours, I guess. Almost two hours? Okay. You um, can stay on for a little bit more if you, you haven't, I don't know, if there's anything you want to talk about. <laughs> um, hmm. What have we not gotten to yet? Uh, any, anything you wanted to ask me? I mean... You did. You did mention that you did want to talk about women, and I think <laughs> is is there anything we mm. have to say? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know what. What are we? What is? What is? What is acceptable to say on a podcast, and what? Yeah, we've we've sort of solved the that question um, in our own conversations. I don't know how well that would translate. I guess. Podcast. I guess just you know we sort of establish the notion of love as like a dialectic between ah, love and hate in a that's way right. 
because you get this sort of artificial like you know the reddit love where it's just very <laughs> all positive uh, and none of the negative yeah. right and that's yeah. not what love is it's interacting really with a real person and you know you don't agree with them on everything you're not identical to them but also you love them yeah and so like if you love someone who's exactly like you like that's just narcissism and that's not real love you know so you should love someone who's kind of the opposite from you and who you fight with a lot i guess and that that's where passion kind of comes from from conflict i mean you you i mean you love you know you love a bit more conflictual than perhaps is ideal but me yeah that's probably true because of him the jews but (laughs) (laughs) well you know jewish women are the most dialectical women right yeah and so as someone who likes dialectics i think that's uh natural that i would enjoy jewish women yeah and if you would get away from that kind of thing it's this sort of i mean it's what dating apps do it's this sort of optimist mm. trying to optimize love into you know being like oh who's the ideal partner who has the most right. things in common with me you can just you know list like five interests and then somehow that works <laughs> and it's like no it's it's meeting a person and it just working out yeah because like it's not it's it, not a choice yeah like it's about making it work and so like it shouldn't be easy if it's easy then it's not love um and yeah so dating apps it's like oh we have these five interests in common okay so we're gonna like watch the same movies together we're gonna go hiking together whatever like you can do that with your friends like you don't want just like a male version of you or or something like you know like oh, we're just going to be sitting next to each other watching, like, the same TV shows, the same movies. Like, that doesn't yeah. mean anything, really. Like, I'm, I, I'm being a bit funny, but I'm not being dishonest when I say that Twitter is a better dating app than, like, Tinder. <laughs> because you're meeting real insane people, and that's what people are. So that's what... You get something authentic yeah. instead of just someone being like, right. I like hiking, and I like <laughs> friends. And you have to be like, oh, yeah, I like that, too. It's just... Right, yeah. You had uh, one of your many wonderful tweets um, a little while ago that meeting and falling in love with an insane person from Twitter is the only real thing in life, right? That's what you yeah. said? Yeah, because the, the reality of joy is insanity, <laughs> in a way. Yes. Yeah, and so... It's this sort of... It's, I mean, it's, it's another dialectic of this very, you know insanity breeding sanity and mm-hmm. sort of an artificial sanity breeding insanity right yeah i think that's a good way of putting it is that with dating apps like the it is an artificial sanity where you're you know putting your most positive foot forward because it's whatever. this idealized version of yourself and you're looking for the idealized other right um, it's just lying yeah that's and all. So, that's I mean, it's just coming up with a a fake version of yourself is all. I mean, it's just in general a neoliberal thing. It's just lying about yourself. Yeah, and that is very much a neoliberal hallmark. But it's especially I don't know vivid with love because you know that's a pretty important part of life. Um, and so we see this neoliberal logic of kind of you know artificial plastic 
self-presentation, idealized self-presentation, um, and like making it very efficient. Like, oh, this person is similar to me in these superficial ways. So we're going to, so that's what love is. It's just like sort of connecting these things that are similar and just like putting them next to each other. But like, that's not going to have a spark really. And so spark requires or like explosion, whatever requires, you know, a kind of negativity. Um, yeah. And dating apps take all the negativity out of it. Whereas with Twitter, which <laughs> you think is a better Hell, it's way. It's all negativity, isn't it? It's all negativity. And, you know, Twitter is very artificial in lots of ways. But I think people are more real on Twitter than other, than certainly on dating apps or other social media platforms. And it also helps that people are, like, in the middle of mental breakdown. So they don't <laughs> remember that they're supposed to be, like, pretend to be normal. So they just are insane. Right. Um and so they're letting their insanity come out. And yeah, I think that that's like that's attractive. What's more attractive than insanity? Nothing. Cuz you're looking for uh, another person. You're not looking for like a a sex toy that talks or something. <laughs> you know, just you right. know, just to hold a fuck and then it just is like, wow, <laughs> we we like the same movies. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's it's not interesting. Um, and so, yeah, like if you put the insanity out up front, then like sanity can follow after. But if you're putting this like artificial sanity up front, as you do on dating apps, then the insanity is going to come out later and that's going to be even worse, you know? And so you want to build on kind of a chaotic ground, I think almost, yeah, which is counterintuitive. Um, but that's dialectics. yeah it's just it's just building on being a real person and sharing real you know real world ideas instead of just sort of forcing something to work because you know it's you know just this i mean it's just i've lost my train of thought but (laughs) no no no, yeah you're right um and so twitter is i guess the best dating app you think um, yeah. because people are in the middle of these Twitter is just one massive ongoing mental breakdown that you have individually and collectively. Um, and yeah, that's what love is. Love is insane. So I guess, <laughs> um, yeah. So, and you think that, so you're not, so we talked earlier about how, you know, I enjoy Jewish women. I, I've tweeted one or two times about that, I think. Um, about yeah, I think once, maybe. <laughs> Just like one big tweet about Jewish pussy, yeah. Um, and you're not quite as much of a fan, but I think you do have an appreciation for how Jewish women are very dialectical, right? Yeah. It's just a sort of, you know, of being... I think there's a thing to being like, ugly but hot in a way because i Mm. think uh ian had a tweet about like uh where he said like hot women aren't attractive or you know like women that are too hot aren't attractive and that's what he got on is this you know that if you're just this very plastic notion of attractiveness you're not attractive right there has to be something missing sort of like because this the soul's gone basically Right. And so if something's like perfect, 
then it's terrible. Like yeah. for something to be beautiful or to be, I don't know, lovable, it can't be perfect. Like it's hard to love, like you can't love a perfect thing really. Yeah. Like why would you love Because it's perfect? nothing. It's not a human. Yeah. Right. Like how you were saying uh, earlier that like nowadays everything uh, like cultures everywhere. So cultures nowhere. Um, and so if something's perfect, if it's everything that you want, then it's nothing and it's nothing that you want really. Cause then you have nothing else to want. It's, it's one of those things where like, yeah, desire doesn't work if it's completely fulfilled, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and so ugly beauty is the highest form of beauty. There has to be a certain part yeah. missing. Yeah. Because that's um, what makes a person human. To reiterate that for the... I mean, I guess that's what I've said all night, is that unique, real <laughs> uniqueness is mm -hmm. what makes something worth liking. Yeah. Um, and so that's harder to find because you know this is one of your main ideas you've been developing um that we see lots of quirkiness but no uniqueness and so like what's the they seem the same they seem like almost synonyms but they're actually very much opposed and this is a big part of what dialectics is it's about finding these little distinctions between things that seem the same right yeah because it's it's the thing is it's being allegedly unique but not being unique at all because there's a million people that are also like that it's like you know the big yeah. trend now is to be a you know nerdy but it's not <laughs> it's not what it used to be because everyone is you know like oh i love marvel yeah. and i love you know comic books and shit right that's not really being a nerd that's more like being a loser than being a nerd and like yeah. that distinction sort of been lost because um, at least with a nerd there is something it was you know like a weird type of person and I, you could kind of respect that in a way if even if they were annoying they were doing their own thing authentically and, and yeah, now that's just this kind of guts like like there was like a almost toughness to that like to being a nerd back in the day like like no i don't care i'm gonna be into fucking i don't know rocket science or something even if it gets me beaten up um and that sort of, I don't know, hardened it and made it better. Um, but now if you're into rocket science, like, you know, you can watch the Big Bang Theory and they're fucking talking about that on TV. And like, it's very safe to do that. Um, and so, yeah, it sort of loses its, um, loses its power. Um, and so would you say that you're a nerd to some extent? In like a classic sense, not in like a like, neoliberal in a sense. classic sense, I guess. But it's, that doesn't exist anymore. I don't think. Yeah. Because that sort You're... of culture has become very mainstream and Yeah. And of course, you know, there's just it's just a different world. It's just not, you know, where you'd have to just sit and read books. Now you can, you know, if you want to spend all day inside, you can talk to people on Twitter. Right. Yeah. Um and so you're kind of like a throwback nerd, but like you're a man out of time sort of. Um I was born in the wrong generation, man. <laughs> <laughs> no one understands me, man. Should have been born when the pirates are good. God damn. Yeah, in the 70s, right? That's when they won their World Series? 71, 79. 
71 and 79. That's yeah. right. So the beginning of the decade and the end of the decade. That's so cool. I, I didn't know that. Hmm. Both against yeah. the Orioles. Yeah. Hmm. So we have um, annoying nerds who aren't real nerds. Uh, nerd culture went mainstream. And that's been going on for a while. Like I remember it sort of peaked in like 2014, I think. I remember that very vividly. Like I was in Brooklyn and like you go to trivia nights and it wasn't just like regular trivia night. It was like, oh, this is super extra nerd trivia. Like trivia wasn't even nerdy enough. That's like nerdify trivia. Um, and it just kept getting more esoteric and more annoying. Because um, I think a part of liberal culture is this sort of cult of knowing things. But knowing yeah. things in a liberal way, not like actually knowing, you know, the immortal science of Marxism, Leninism. It's just <laughs> being like, wow, I yeah. read Paul Krugman and that makes me special. Right. Let's go see a Marvel movie. Right. So knowing things in a liberal way is sort of just knowing isolated particular facts or whatever. Um, it's trivia. Knowing things, trivia, yeah. And so trivia is knowledge without dialectics. So dialectics gives you context. It shows how the particular... Uh, contains the universal and the universal contains the particular and how the interplay between them, you know, strengthens both of them. Um, whereas again, with the liberal mind or the bourgeois mind, there's no dialectical connector there. And so I think that's one of the reasons that trivia and nerdiness have gotten so popular over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years or whatever um, is because it's this way it's anti-dialectical, but it's a way of, it's a way of seeming smart without being dialectical, which I guess is a big part of what being a fucking liberal is about. And like, that's Obama yeah. too. It's yeah. about loving science, but then not actually knowing anything about science or the real science, which of course is Marxism. Yeah. Leninism. Right. Exactly. Um, but even like other forms of science, people don't really know about it. And so, you know, cause like nobody, nobody knows what a vaccine is. It's right. like, it's, it's yeah. good. But that's all that. Like, <laughs> but then when like people get COVID, quote unquote, get COVID and they're vaccinated, <laughs> it's like, oh, that's really bad. But like, no, it's if you have the, the point of the vaccine is to make you not die of it. It's not the like it's I, I tweeted today that like a vaccine, it's, it's like a gun that the body has that <laughs> shoots away the virus. Oh, that's yeah. what the understanding is. Both I mean, yeah. just generally people don't they act like if you get like, you know, like quote-unquote covid and it's you have covid but it just feels like you know a cold or the flu and that's the vaccine's still working because i mean if you didn't have it you would be in the hospital right yeah and i like how you are proletarianizing science in this way by reducing things to like you know um creatures like like a virus is like a i don't know some kind of monster in your body it's an animal there's only yeah there's only one kingdom of life, and it's animals. They're all, they <laughs> all have little legs, and they all scream. What else around. would there be? Like, why would there be anything other than animals? That's insane. There's a, some that. of them are just really little. Yeah, and some are big, and we're right in between. Um, it's perfectly obvious. Um, but yeah, so there is this, so it goes along with this uh, nerd fetishism, um, this like fake knowledge without dialectics, just unconnected particulars and trivia. Um, that goes along with this big, you know, STEM fetishism. STEM is uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. 
Um, that's been pushed a lot over the last. Yeah, STEM for women. Let's get more women <laughs> in STEM. Right. Women and black people, they got to go into STEM for sure. And that will bring us uh, social democracy or, I don't know, something good, I guess, supposedly. Um, but yeah, so there's this emphasis on science. But again, I don't think people really know that much about science. So even like climate change, that's a scientific thing. Um, but I don't think people who even like support something like the Green New Deal, which is the big anti-climate change political thing that AOC and others are pushing. Um, Artist of Con. Artist of Con. That's right. Yeah, that's the definitive take. Uh, what was it? Amoralista Opportunista Compradora was her other one. <laughs> She's so goddamn good, man. We're talking about Red Kahina, of course. Uh, one, of, one of the best. The woman who does not miss. She does not ever miss. Yeah, she's she's fantastic. Um, thank God she unblocked me. I think she blocked me, and Phil Greaves unblocked me, who's also great. He's like sort of the male version of Red Kahina, and he's very into proletarian science, as as you are questioning, you know, bourgeois medicine and so on. Um, I think they blocked me because I was like an irony guy, um, and that annoys them. But yes, Red Kahina has unblocked me, and she's very, she's basically anti-vax. Um, and so that's <laughs> yeah. immediately immediately turned me into that um, because she's very influential. Um, but yeah, so uh, the Green New Deal, like the people who promote it, I don't think they actually know how climate change works uh, in terms of like, you know, the polar ice caps are melting. And so there's less like white color on the planet Earth and because ice is white. And so the white ice reflects sun off of the planet back into outer space. Um, and so as the ice melts, like the dark ocean takes over more of it and that absorbs more of the heat, just like very basic shit about environmental science. Um, and that's like fifth grade level shit that I was just saying. But I feel like most of the people who are very pro Green New Deal or, you know, concerned about climate change, they couldn't even tell you that. And that's like the most basic thing to know about climate change. And because it's, cl- it's not it's not about actually knowing things for yourself it's about deference to supposed experts or it's like oh right. well, just let the you know the experts handle it and that's all my job is to do right your job is to just be like a, i don't know unpaid publicist or intern for experts and that makes people feel good about themselves or like they're i don't know contributing to politics your job way. is to support the regime <laughs> not experts so in a regime, what role do experts have? Really no role. Many regimes, experts are killed, and I think they were better off for that. I think probably because in a good regime, um, it's all about popular science. It's about proletarian science. It's like about- Lizard, called, uh, Lizard called Cuba today a uh, people's regime. And that's, that's, I mean, that's, you know, in other words, yeah. a dictatorship of the proletariat. It's. Yeah, a exactly. strong state, but one where you are very much participating in it, rather than a weak state right. where you don't really, it doesn't help you, and you don't have any role in it. Right, and so in a weak state that you don't participate in, that's when experts become very important because they have to sort of, you know, they have fill to save the us. They have to save us. They're stepping up and filling the role that is the the gap that's left by the you know subordination of the proletariat or the alienation of the of the proletariat 
But in a dictatorship of the proletariat or a people's regime, which is what they have to some extent in Cuba, although, you know, Cuba's not perfect, although it's close to perfect, um, they don't necessarily have this cult of expertise that we have. Because um, every, literally everyone in Cuba is a doctor <laughs> themselves. So it's like they know it themselves. A doctor like, oh. of dialectical materialism. Yes, and also a medical doctor as well. And also a very good baseball player. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and in a dictatorship of the proletariat, those are the kinds of things that are possible. Um, and that's basically you know, what Marx says, I think, in the German ideology, that in communist society, very well-known passage, um, you don't have one exclusive sphere of activity that dominates your consciousness. You know, just as you have a mind, he says, you can fish in the morning, herd cattle in the afternoon and criticize after dinner so you can do all kinds of things every day and so you're not you're not doing one thing all day because you're an actual person who has multiple interests and yeah. isn't just, just you know yep. isn't just typecast as something isn't just forced into a singular role is actually you're actually a person that does lots of things right and so you know as people can actually become people, the role of experts declines. So, like, because every man is an expert. Yeah, an expert in fucking in humanity, in being alive, and you know, like, if you're a human being on the planet Earth, you have a brain. You can figure a lot of shit out, and you can do all kinds of things. Um, it's it's not hard to teach yourself. Which you know, a lot of in a lot of ways, regular education fails that. If you're interested in something and you want to learn about it, then you can learn a lot, even if it's just you know fucking around in your free time. Yeah, and that's probably what you've done, right? Like you, you know a lot, um, and you probably didn't learn most of it in school. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, you learned most of it from me. <laughs> yeah, and Freddie, the yes. two, the two, right. the two, the the professor and the probable future professor. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I think another one of your secrets is no video games and you don't really watch movies either, right? Yeah. Like, I watch movies if I feel, if I know I'll enjoy it and get something from it. Yeah. And so you've seen I, like five movies in your life, probably. Ten now. <laughs> it's not a lot it's something i'll i mean every once in a while i'll get into it but other than that i don't think there's i'm not a movie person yeah um and so you've seen 10 movies that's more than i thought you would say i guess like you've seen more in the last year because you know everyone's stuck yeah. inside now yeah well that's good um mostly like 70s movies like movies from the 60s and 70s yeah, mostly. Mm-hmm. And so you saw Taxi Driver. That was a very good movie. Mm. Did you recently see it? It's in... I think that was before COVID. Oh, you did? Oh, great. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm basically Travis Bickle. Yes. But... <laughs> you also look like uh, Marty Scorsese's uh, very uh, vocal <laughs> yes. customer. Yes. <laughs> Has some interesting ideas about race. He does, yeah. Well, he's Just doing like dialectics. Do. Yeah, he's doing dialectics. That's all. Um, 
Yeah, I guess I do sort of look like him too. Um, in in that movie, at least. I don't know because he has a beard in that movie, and and De Niro doesn't. Yeah, I look like more crazy young De Niro, but I have. I don't know. We're talking too much about me. Um, but yeah. Um, anything else we want to talk about, Ben? This has been this has been really good. There's not anything you have in mind. I think we've covered basically everything we've ended up talking about. Yeah, I think we uh, covered most of our ideas. Um, and we can definitely do this again sometime. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, this has been a conversation with the great Ben uh, at not Ben Fish on Twitter. Um, so thanks for coming on, Ben. Uh, great thanks for having you. me, man. It's really yeah. good talking. Yeah, awesome. Um, all right. And you still there? <laughs> yeah. That's uh I have to get Craig to leave. Hopefully we can edit this part out.